The Abounding Joy of New Testament Hope. This is part 10. We, we started looking at the things that hope produces in our lives in relation to faith and holiness. And then we started looking at the sources of holiness, the grace of God, the truth of the scriptures, and the fellowship of believers. And then we looked at the objects, some of the objects of our hope, the second coming, the resurrection of the body, perfected righteousness in Christ. And then we started looking at the fruits of hope, some of the things it produces in our lives. And we looked at joy, and then we looked at love. I want to still talk about hope along a slightly different line. So if you were writing this as a paragraph, this would be a comma. And this morning's message would fit here before we pick up directly with some of the other things. Hope and the generation yet unborn. Psalm 78, 1 to 8. A maskil of Asaph. I'll talk about that in a second. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So, so tilt, tilt your ears in, in the direction of what I'm saying. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel which commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, and here's the phrase, so that they should set their hope, we're preaching on hope, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. A maskal of Asaph, uh, that word maskal is interesting. It, it literally means uh, enlightening. When you see the word a maskal at the beginning of the psalm, what you're being triggered to is that the Psalms, of course, most of them speak of the greatness, the glory of God, their, their prayers, their address to the Lord. A maskal is a psalm that says, this psalm is a bit different. There's a way of wisdom here. That's what that word enlightening means. In other words, the psalmist is telling us right at the beginning, as this would be used in the worship of Israel, the psalmist is saying right at the beginning, there's something here that you will likely miss if you don't give this your attention, okay? That's what maskal means. It means there's, there's a wisdom here, but it's not something you'd likely figure out on your own. So when it says a maskal of Asaph, it's a way of saying, pay attention to this. We should be interested in the words that kind of theme this passage in verses 6 and 7, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, 
and arise and tell them to their children. So there's children not born yet. They're not even on the scene. And they're going to have children. And their children need this. So that they should set their hope in God. What a great phrase. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I can't think of a nobler theme for a church, parents, a nobler theme to live by. What could be more important than to leave this imprint so stamped on our children that our children and then their children after them and their children after them, that all of those people live life through thick and thin, putting their hope in God. That's the deal here. Is there anyone here who has any genuine devotion to the Lord? If there's anyone who delights in knowing God and loving God and serving God, for anyone like that, if you could just be absolutely sure that your children and then the children that aren't born yet and then the children of the children who aren't born yet, that they could all grow to live their lives hoping and trusting in the God of the scriptures. I think we would all just go to our graves, no matter what our circumstances, and we'd just say, mission accomplished. And everyone said, yeah. It's written by a man called Asaph, a Levite, who was a music leader, a worship leader in the service of the king. It's a long psalm, 72 verses. And in, in places we didn't read, it's a depressing psalm. Study it when you get home. It tells the story of Israel's more or less constant rebellion against the ways of God. And that's why in the verses we'll be studying today, Asaph says this psalm is full of, verse 2, dark sayings and parables. Some translations say mysteries. It's, it's, it's simply a dark, confusing riddle how a people could be so receptive of all that God had done for them and then still be rebellious against such a gracious, delivering God. It makes no sense. Dark sayings. So the psalmist, he paints this picture of the reality of sin we're, we're, we're forced to look at it maybe a little more squarely than our society encourages us to think about sin. And, and the reason Asaph does this, I think, is immediately obvious. He's going to talk about educating children to hope in God. Educating people, both at home and in the church, to, to trust obediently in the goodness and the love of God. And Asaph warns every parent, every pastor, every teacher that there's immediately going to be discovered a problem as you educate your children and their children unto hope in God. And here's the problem. They're all sinners. They aren't naturally inclined to hope in God. They got that from you, by the way. 
And here's the point. Because of this reality, not just any kind of educating process will do. This unique problem, educating a sinful generation and then the next sinful generation and the next, educating them unto hope in God, it's an uphill battle. It's a unique problem with a unique remedy, and that's what this psalm is all about. Point number one. The foundation of hope is the kindness and character of God. I get that in Psalm 78, verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob, a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. I know those aren't the first words of the psalm, but they explain, they explain the first words of the psalm. In fact, they explain many of the verses in the entire psalm. Verse 5 that I just read, he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Verse 5 really explains, it's the reason for verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but will tell of the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. So the first four verses describe the need for a teaching program, an educating of the people of God, especially the children and those yet unborn. Well, how are we going to do this? Verse 5 tells us. It says God established he established a testimony, and he appointed a law. So this is what establishes the foundation to educating a people to hope. If God hasn't spoken, we have nothing worthwhile to pass on. That's the point. If God hasn't spoken, we have nothing to say. If God hasn't spoken, you, you sure don't have to listen to me. We're just left adrift in a sea of speculation and reasoning. Churches can just spend their days spinning out media and marketing. It won't have any ultimate significance anyway. So, so there's such a lesson here for all of us. If we're going to talk about educating a generation unto hope, you have to start with something to say. There's, there's just more being implied in these verses than maybe we immediately see. Consider the lesson that people do not orient lives. People who don't orient their lives around the revelation of God. They don't know what's good for themselves and they don't know what's ultimately good for their children. Without a testimony from the Lord. So that's why Asaph, in this worship song, he immediately turns our foundation to the foundation of all meaningful educational efforts for the kingdom of God. He's revealed his will. He's given a testimony. He's given a law. You'll see signs all over the building if you're visiting. Our children's ministry, blast, building lives around scriptural truth. If that's not the case, what are we doing? 
There's a testimony. There's something God has revealed. Now, when Asaph said this, everyone in Israel knew what he was talking about. They would all know about the event in Asaph's mind as he wrote those words in that fifth verse. They knew that specific time when God gave this law and this testimony to Israel. It's talked about in Exodus 34, 28. So he was there, that's Moses, with the Lord 40 days, 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Here we go again. And so Asaph, he points these people back to the words of the Ten Commandments. But there is something very important to notice about the tablets of testimony, or the commandments as they're called, and it's a point that is central to what Asaph wants to say in the 78th Psalm. There's something that happens when Moses receives the commandments from God that is very easy just to gloss over in Exodus chapter 20. When you see how that chapter starts, Exodus 21 and 2, and God spoke all these words. He's going to get the commandments now, okay? God's going to come down. The finger of God is going to carve these commandments on these pieces of stone. But here's how it starts. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. So in other words, the first words of the commandments have really nothing to do with law. The the preamble, the setting up of the whole occasion, it isn't telling them to do anything. It's telling them to remember something. And the words have to do with the mercy, the unbelievable grace, the tender, delivering care with an outstretched arm and with a mighty hand, God saved Israel from bondage and oppression. And he did that before he gave them any commandments, before requiring anything of them, he delivers them. So the tables of testimony really don't begin with just commands. They begin with a testimony about God's grace and power revealed on their behalf. Okay, now, remember that and think about that fifth verse. When Asaph says in Psalm 78.5 that God has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, he, he doesn't just mean God gave them things to do. He means that God has shown them what he has done for them and then what their response should be. Just remember that point for now because it's going to be even more important in just a little while in this message. Point number two. Not only does God establish a foundation for the education of our children in hope, he outlines a method. 
So in other words, God tells us specifically how we are to educate people in hope. It's right there in that fifth verse. He established a testimony in God. In, sorry, he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. What that means is, God, these mighty delivering acts, and, and there's a generation that wasn't there that has to know about them, okay? And so the way, the way the information is of God's grace and his might and his delivering power, the way that's going to reach the children is through the fathers. Interesting, the fathers, And what that immediately means is God has no intention of repeating those great delivering events over and over and over again. The children will only hear about them through the faithful retelling of the fathers. It's right there in that fifth verse. So that means they're not always going to see what the generation saw that participated in those events. God had no intention to speak to every generation the way he spoke to that generation that came out of Egypt and Moses on the mountain. There would be some unique things that he did with that generation that wouldn't be repeated in any other. Well, how will they hear about it? It implies this direct responsibility to a church like ours and to a home like yours It places an immense obligation on the shoulders of preachers, teachers, parents in particular, fathers especially mentioned, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, verse 5. God has no backup plans. Everything depends on this. This isn't something churches may do if they like. It's the one thing they, they have to do. They must do it or there will be no hope. That's our topic, remember, for all the children coming up. There'll be no hope. So, I mean, there is that encouragement, isn't there? When, when you set your priorities, the priorities of your life, don't just look at what you can see right here, right now. It's not even just about your children, and it's not even just about your grandchildren. Our assignment extends farther down the road than that. There will be others. They're still unborn. There'll be a generation after the generation that's still unborn. And, and somehow... My life has an effect. The things I say, the things I teach. My life has an effect on a generation that isn't even on earth yet. Do you see that? Like the significance of your life extends to ten generations after you die. That's how, that's how this linking up of testimony works. So, so Asaph, he says, get a big vision here. Things, things snowball, things multiply. Long beyond the horizon of what you can see with your eyes, your life has meaning. 
The only way following generations would learn about those tables of testimony would be for the parents from one generation to pass the word along to those who followed. There are some things that your children must learn from you. And and you just see the indelible logic of this psalm. If we don't pass hope in God, if we don't pass that to our offspring, there will be no one for them to pass it on to their offspring and their offspring and their offspring. So so two things come out from verse 5. The foundation of all of this is we have something to tell that is sure and true. God established a testimony. It comes from God. And the method is one generation has to pass it on to the next. That's what I get in that fifth verse. Point number three. Asaph responds to the summons of God that we just studied. Now, look at the first four verses after we looked at the fifth. A maskal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. I see several thoughts here. First, Asaph calls on the people to remember the deeds of the Lord. That's right in the fourth verse of those first four verses. We will not hide them from their children, but we'll tell. We'll tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. That's why I pointed out from verse 5 that the law and the testimony contained more than just a list of things God wanted them to do. Remember how it started? We looked at Exodus 20. The, The law starts with... I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt and out of bondage. There are divine commands. 78.4 says, divine commands for sure. Things God wanted them to do. But that's not the whole starting point. Asaph calls the people to remember God's mighty delivering deeds. He's reminding them of things like the plagues that turned Pharaoh's heart in Egypt, changed his mind, the frogs, the water turning to blood, the flies, the gnats, the hail, the darkness, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna, the quail, water from the rock, pillar of fire, cloud. There's a whole generation that hasn't seen any of it. These were mighty manifestations of God's power. But the huge problem is the children addressed by Asaph weren't there. They didn't see it. They weren't born yet. And so, and these were very different days for Israel. Love was growing cold. And so Asaph calls the parents and the teachers and the leaders to this really full-blooded assignment. Remind the next generation. 
Remind the next generation so they can remind their children. Life doesn't just... They're going to sit down with these kids and they're going to say, there's a reason you're not a slave in Egypt today. Do you know why God came down and delivered us and parted the Red Sea? That's why you're free today. That it didn't just happen. They have to know that. They have to hear that. They have to learn that. Their God was an awesome God. And Asaph says, make sure they learn these truths from your lips. There's still something else. B. Asaph uses these strange words to describe his message. It's in the second verse. Psalm 78, 2. I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings from of old. What is that all about? Some of your translations will say mysteries instead of parables, but the idea is pretty much the same. He's, he's saying there's something strange to notice here, something very unusual and something hard to explain. He's, there's two things that Asaph says don't make any sense when you look at Israel's dealings with God in the past. Tell the children this. First, there's this repetition of human rebellion and wickedness in spite of all the blessings they received. We didn't look at these verses in the opening text, but how, how often, tell the kids, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again. They provoked the Holy One of Israel. And here's the other amazing thing. The other amazing thing is in verse 38. These are the dark sayings. Yet he, God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. I'll tell you why those two points, repeated rebellion... Again and again, that's the words that Asaph uses. Repeated rebellion, and then God's mercy and grace. I'll tell you why it's important to communicate those things. We're talking about educating a people to hope. And we talked about the foundation of God's mighty acts. The two amazing things. Repeated rebellion, repeated sin... After being delivered. That's the first using dark parabolic thing. The second amazing thing is that God continued to pardon and show grace and show mercy. He atoned for their iniquity, verse 38, and did not destroy them, restrained his anger, did not stir up all his wrath. And I said, I'll tell you why those two things are important to remember. That we're educating a people unto hope. And, and so you have the people's repeated wickedness even when they knew better. Even when they were given the best advantage. All of God's grace, his delivering power, they still persisted in sin. 
And then secondly, this amazing record of God's grace. These people didn't deserve it. They should have worn out all of God's patience. And throughout their whole history, God's mercy still shines kind of like a diamond, undiminished by this mountain of human wickedness. Do you see what Asaph is doing? Tell the children about this. It's very important. First, he's saying that preachers and parents and teachers need to take sin very seriously when they educate their children in the next generation. Oh, how many churches don't do that anymore? You can't magnify grace until you've accentuated sin. You can't just start doling out information and think it's somehow going to change a sinner's heart. And so this teaching on sin, tell the next generation. The teaching on sin is to humble us, is to bring us to an end of self-trust. Because until we're brought to see hopelessness in self, we will never be brought to see hope in God and his grace and the cross. And then, after the weight of sin, the teaching on mercy and grace rises up hope in our hearts. Do you know how many people... Here's why people have to know this. Do you know how many people are thinking they've, they've just messed up one too many times? Slipped too far? Drifted too far? Been, been too consciously rebellious? Knew better and still disobeyed God? And, and they're convinced that because that they're without hope. And, and Asaph says, tell the children and then their children and then their children. Tell them about this, this people who again and again and again rebelled against the Lord. And God, and God stayed with them and didn't give up on them. People need to know that. You'll bump into people every day that need to know it. Point number four. The goal of all scriptural training hope that the next generation that's verses 6 through 8 that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children that's the ones that aren't born yet they're going to tell it to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Here are the closing lessons I want to try and tie this up with. A, we must instill in our children a knowledge of God. Verse 6, that the next generation might know them. The next generation might know them. I thought as I was going over this, be good, wouldn't it, to have that over the doors of every classroom in this church, every entranceway. Everywhere you go, a little signs that the next generation will know them. Over the sanctuary doors, that the next generation will know them. 
even the children yet unborn, so much at stake. You won't be around to see your children's children's children. But grab onto this Bible-soaked thought that you still have a hand in teaching them. Parents, the next time, I'm sorry for the lecture. The next time you just don't feel like getting out of bed for church after a busy Saturday, the next time you're just too tired to come back to church Sunday night, I just would urge you to remember these words. There's, there's no easy way to confront this massive question. Is your temporary comfort or your social life or a few minutes more sleep, are those things really worth the future of scores and scores and scores of people's spiritual development? Do you really want to be the weak link in the chain to the generations yet unborn? I don't. Knowledge of God, he says, that the next generation might know. Second thing here, the impartation of the knowledge of God is to lead the children to hope. It's in verses 6 and 7. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. What a great phrase. What a prayer. It's, it's a distinctly Christian concept. We're not talking about just creating people who walk on the sunny side of the street or have a bit of a sunnier disposition or a little higher level of self-esteem. It's not, it's not specifically what we're looking at here. It's, it's not an emotional hope at all. He's talking about a, a, a spiritual hope, an eternal hope. The way, we, the way we line up our lives with the objects of our hope. Here's the thing. It's true of all of us. It's true of your children. It will be true of their children's children and those after them. We all sink our lives not S-I-N-K. We all sink our lives with the object of our ultimate hope. If it's education, if it's wealth, if it's a good retirement, if it's a career, if it's a degree, nothing wrong with any of those things. All I'm saying is we all sink our lives with the object of our ultimate hope. That's why training people to hope in God, it will have this great effect of orienting lives to his kingdom. I'm almost done. 1 John 3.3. 3. Isn't John saying exactly this? The one who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So so what John is saying is, this is what produces this. Your hope. You sink your life with your ultimate hope. Teaching a generation to hope in God. Don't let familiarity with that text from 1 John kind of just let it roll by without thinking about each word. It's not bare doctrine that produces inward holiness. 
It's not even just some kind of religious affiliation. It's, it's their hope. It's what they're banking on. It's what they're longing for. It's what they can't wait for. It's, it's what they can't get enough of. That's what fuels the rest of your life. Does my life teach? My life teach children and everyone else that observes it. Does my life teach people where to put their hope? Does my life reveal to people there's only one thing I'm looking for? Huge question, because it's certain that I can't easily teach people to hope in God if they see me putting my hope in wealth or success or achievement. Earthly hopes will vanish like mist by the road. The Bible says those who hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. My last thought. The goal of educating a generation in hope is to cause them to obey God. Where I get that one? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. If, if you've never considered it before, let me just urge you to notice it at least here. There's an order to Asaph's words. And, and he explains the emptiness. His explanation here, it, it exposes the emptiness of so many efforts in terms of spiritual transformation. People have to be taught to hope in God before their hearts are transformed so they want to obey him. You really can't dictate just sheer obedience, cold obedience to God, except for short spurts with maybe someone with great willpower. But you can't go in there with just a bunch of rules like a bull in a china shop. Because we're sinners, we resent bare authority when it's exerted over our lives. The next generation has to be taught to long for God. They have to hear it from us. They have to be shown by example not to trust in themselves. And they have to be primed to look to a loving Father in heaven. The hearts that long for hope in these things are much quicker to joyful obedience. Sorry for all the interruptions, but if this many people in this room, okay, and you pile up the generations, by the time you have those yet unborn, those still unborn, okay, add them up, and then their children those still unborn, and then their children. It's a much bigger crowd than is in this room. Right? It's an astronomical number. 
Our assignment is not to be the weak link in the chain. That the next generation would hope in God. Everyone said? <laughs>